The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come. And one of the most triumphant doxologies in the Bible is found in the back of the book. Revelation 12.10 declares the fulfillment of the Lord's Prayer. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our Lord day and night has been cast down. Hallelujah. In this life, you and I have an enemy, and it's not other people. Ultimately, our enemy is Satan. He accuses believers day and night, trying to pin something on us. But how shall we deal with all of Satan's accusations and lies? I'm Christine Dorick. The book of Revelation prophesies the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah. And this glorious transition of kingdoms from earthly to heavenly will come about ultimately as a result of Israel resuming her place and Israel being restored in God's eternal plans and purposes. How important it is that Israel be restored physically and spiritually so that Jesus can return and set up his millennial Davidic kingdom. But it seems never to cross the minds of most politicians that Jesus will return to take over the reins of government. If anything, politicians, and sadly many churchmen, only see Israel as a political problem. But if these leaders knew the Bible, they'd also know that the second coming of Jesus is mandatory for the future well-being of this planet, and that the re-emergence of the nation of Israel on the world scene indicates that the Lord's return is very near. Now I'm going to ask any of my Jewish friends who may be watching to tolerate the antiquated wording of the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentaries. But it's fascinating because it states that on the eve of Messiah's second coming, Israel will be restored as the, quote, Mother Church of Christendom, end quote. I know that sounds very churchy, but it's not intended to be replacement theology. Rather, it's restoration theology. You see, the concept of Israel's restoration is vitally important for believers to understand. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul taught that Israel would not be rejected by God, but that the fig tree and the olive tree which are biblical figures representing Israel, will be restored in the last days. The church mustn't be arrogant against Israel, as if the church is the be-all and end-all of God's program. As Zechariah 2.8 declares, Israel is the apple of God's eye, always has been and always will be. Meanwhile, the church was formed to be a mystical body throughout history, consisting of individuals who've been called out from the nations to become part of the corporate bride of Messiah. These blood-washed, saved individuals will be an everlasting family and reward for King Messiah. 
He'll see the travail of his soul and be satisfied with the number of the redeemed, the fullness of the Gentiles. Yet God is a covenant keeper, and he also intends to restore his physical people to Israel. And Satan, who's always resisted the church and Israel's restoration, will finally be cast down by Michael, Israel's angelic prince. You see, the Bible speaks of a war in heaven. And in the book of Revelation 12.10, a Hebrew word for Satan is used. He's called the accuser, because in Jewish tradition, Satan is spoken of as the accuser. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. And what exactly are these accusations? Well, it's important to train ourselves to monitor and listen to what comes out of our own mouths. Our speech simply must be disciplined. We must learn to be very careful whenever we hear ourselves speaking in an accusing tone. Indeed, malicious accusation is a chief characteristic of Satan. And every time you hear a believer being criticized, you can question if the voice is, as it were, the voice of Satan. He maliciously accuses the brethren night and day, and tragically, we see plenty of that going on in the churches, especially in these end times. In Matthew 24:12, Jesus said that because sin will be rampant everywhere, the love of many will grow cold. People are giving into the temptation of hating, despising, and accusing one another. And we have to know how to deal with accusations that originate from Satan. This characteristic of Satan is so well known as to make the accuser one of his official titles. He's the accuser of the redeemed. He works and plots to bring false charges against believers to destroy our influence and reputation. From the beginning, Satan has been bringing accusations against the people of God. As a matter of fact, in one of the oldest books of the Bible, the book of Job, we see Satan in his role as the accuser of the brethren. People often wonder why. Why do bad things happen to good people? And often the answer is found in the book of Job. In that book, God pulls back the curtain and shows us very clearly how Satan operates to wreak havoc, but only as far as God permits it. Job was blameless and upright, and the Bible says he feared God. And have you noticed how many people, even believers, seem to have no real fear of God these days? And they say the most outlandish things without thinking that anybody's listening. They behave as if there'll be no consequences for uttering blasphemies against one another. But Job chapter 1 testifies that Job feared God and shunned evil. In his day, Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering on behalf of his children just to cover them and to remit any potential sins of commission or sins of omission in case they'd sinned by cursing God in their hearts. That's how meticulous Job was in his prayer life. Well, one day the angels presented themselves before the Lord and Satan reported that 
he had been roaming back and forth throughout the earth. Indeed, in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5.8 describes Satan as a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour. Concerning Job, the Lord said to Satan, There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But Satan smirked. He said, Does Job fear God for nothing? That's because you put a protective hedge around him and everything he has. But now Satan dared God strike everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. You see, Satan is bold and he's malicious. But God has also given us mighty weapons to keep him in check. The Lord said to Satan, Everything Job has is in your power, but don't lay a finger on the man himself. You see, we never know when we're being tested and if our actions and attitudes are a spectacle being watched by God, men, and angels. So Satan caused incredible catastrophes to befall Job's property and his children, yet Job maintained his integrity. However, it's never enough for Satan. The accuser dared God to allow Job to become sick. And then Satan said, Job will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, He's in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went forth and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And Job's wife tempted him to curse God and die. But Job didn't sin by anything he said. And in the end, God vindicated him, healed him, and greatly rewarded him, abundantly restoring everything. So what does this teach us? When troubles come, we should always think soberly about ourselves and consider the warning that Jesus gave to Simon Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. The Lord had warned that before the rooster crowed, Peter would disown Jesus three times. In Luke 22:31, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you as wheat. And that sounds exactly like the way Satan behaved concerning Job. But Jesus said, I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. There are many potential pitfalls and dangers in our journey through life, and may God help us to watch for moments when we're weak or unguarded so we'll not fall into foolish pride or willful sin. Satan moves in the role of the accuser of the brethren by charging believers with hypocrisy, with insincerity. He wants to stir up within us secret vices and crimes or accuse us of that. That's how the martyrs were wickedly accused by Satan and still are. And when a believer unfortunately falls into sin, the church as a whole suffers because suspicions are cast on everybody who bears the name of the Lord. So now I want to take you to one of my very favorite verses having to do with spiritual warfare and combating the accuser of the brethren. I've used this verse many times. It's powerful and 
particularly relevant to any spiritual warfare having to do with Israel, Jerusalem, and ministries associated with God's end-time plans. And it's found in the third chapter of the book of Zechariah. And it describes how the high priest named Joshua was wonderfully preserved in the Babylonian captivity. But now Satan sought to accuse and hinder him when he was about to resume the office of high priest. So let's look at Zechariah 3 and verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right side of him to make accusations. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning brand snatched from the fire? Now it tells us that Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel of the Lord. And these polluted garments were an idiom representing the sins of the people of whom he was their representative. The angel said, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put on you fine, rich garments. And this picture is a picture of the gospel. Joshua stands before God as a sinner while the adversary, Satan, accuses but the angel of the Lord represents Messiah who takes away our rags and presents us through his atonement with a robe of righteousness, giving us right standing with God. In the scenario, the holy temple had been destroyed and the temple service had ceased. And now this high priest was plucked like a brand out of the fire. And although Joshua had returned from captivity and the priesthood in some measure was being restored, though not to its former glory, he was at that point in time like a smoking firebrand in danger of being extinguished. Yet, through the grace, love, and mercy of God, Joshua and the Jewish people were being preserved and restored. But as usual, Satan's accusations were bold and daring like we saw in the book of Job. Yet the rebuke of the Lord silenced Satan and confounded him. The accuser no doubt brought serious charges against the Jewish people for their former sins and unfaithfulness. But we have to settle it in our minds. If we know this word from cover to cover, that the Lord protects his plans and purposes, and no purpose of his can be thwarted or stopped. According to the customs of ancient courts of justice in the East, this Bible episode of Satan standing at the right hand of Joshua to accuse him was accurate because the accuser always stood at the right hand of the accused. The high priest being slandered by Satan is a picture of how Satan attacks believers, but also how the Lord protects us with his royal rebuke. Think of you and me standing before the judge, God Almighty. Like Joshua, we're no better. We're all clothed in filthy rags. Romans 3.10 declares there's none righteous, not even one. The Bible adds not one, just in case we think we're not included. 
We fallen human beings have no righteousness of our own that we can offer to God in order to be accepted by Him. But as we stand before Messiah, clothed in rags, He exchanges our unworthiness and our rags for His robe of righteousness. We exchange our sin for the Messiah's right standing with God. And then when the accuser of the brethren rises up to oppose us, get this, he, in effect, is resisting the Holy Spirit within us. And that's dangerous. That's blasphemy. The Lord Jesus, King Messiah, is the rebuker of Satan. He's the sinner's advocate. And he gives a double rebuke. Hallelujah. This verse says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And that's why the little book of Jude in the New Testament informs us that when the archangel Michael disputed with Satan, Michael said, The Lord rebuke you. Satan's accusations against us may be founded upon truth in the past, but his motive is sheer malice now directed against the people whom God is restoring into favor. And therefore, Satan's interference is rejected and rebuked. Zechariah 3 is so very relevant to today because at this time, God is once again restoring his ancient Jewish people into favor in their land after a long exile for nearly two millennia. And those who accuse Israel of occupying their own land are fighting against God himself. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, Satan, is a rebuke that expresses Israel's eternal election. Israel's renewed acceptance by God is the reason why Satan's accusation is rejected. Our society has become so secular that even churchgoers don't know what's meant by the elect of God. But election is a biblical doctrine. In eternity past, God chose the nation of Israel and those who will be saved. Israel will not be abandoned by God to the consequences of her past rejection of Messiah. Romans 8.33 asks, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. And Romans 11.2 declares God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Just as this high priest Joshua was saved from the fate of his father and grandfather who lived in exile, so Joshua the high priest becomes a type of the deliverance and restoration of Israel. God said this Joshua was a brand plucked out of the fire. Israel had already been punished by misery and captivity. She was delivered, and presently she's being delivered again. Can you see that? And ultimately, all of us are brands plucked from the fire, snatched from hell itself by the atoning mercy of the Savior. British apostle John Wesley often referred to himself as a brand plucked out of the fire, a phrase, of course, that we just read in Zechariah 3.2 but it's also mentioned in Amos 4:11, which says you were like a burning stick snatched from the flames. And so it was in 1709 when John Wesley wasn't yet six years old, a fire broke out in his father's rectory in England and John was stranded on an upper floor 
just seconds before the roof crashed in on him, John was pulled through a window by a neighbor standing on the shoulders of another neighbor. And for many years, I had a prayer partner in Israel named Mary of blessed memory. She's gone on to her eternal reward. Mary's mother escaped death during the Nazi Holocaust, and their family later made Aliyah to Israel from Hungary. When Mary's mother was a young girl, she had been yanked out of a gas chamber at the last minute. A guard grabbed her mother's arm just as the door of the gas chamber was closing. She was pulled out to work in a factory. Well, I gasped when I first heard the story. I, I said to Mary, your mother was a brand plucked from the fire. And Mary never would have been born, and I never would have had such a prayer partner if her mother had not been snatched out of the fire. But God had chosen her, and the Lord has also chosen Jerusalem for his special residence. And we can say to the powers and principalities coming against the people of God and against the nation of Israel, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, Satan. The word of God is powerful, and it will not return empty, but it will accomplish the purpose for which we send it. Amen. Now, besides quoting Zechariah 3, 2, how else can we combat such a skilled adversary and accuser? Well, 1 John 4, 4 is a great verse. It declares, little children, that is, dear believers, you are of God and you belong to him. And you've already overcome the agents of the Antichrist because he who's within you is greater than he, Satan who's in the world. That's how the Amplified reads that verse. So thank God we don't have to rely on our own brains, on our own skill or cunning, but the one who lives within us believers, the Holy Spirit, is greater. He's omniscient and he knows exactly how to give us a specific rhema word from this Bible to thwart the adversary. The Holy Spirit will teach us the wisdom of how to behave and what to do as we look to the Lord for guidance. Another effective verse to declare, using this word as a sword of the Spirit, is Isaiah 54, 17, a favorite of seasoned prayer warriors. No weapon that's formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. So when false accusations come, when you're afflicted and tossed, let the people of God take comfort in these powerful words and promise of protection in Isaiah 54, 17. Security and final victory are the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Satan is always devising how he can destroy and accuse us it's his favorite pastime. In the days of the book of Esther, no doubt Satan inspired the king's viceroy, Haman, with a sick hatred of the Jewish people. So typical of the spirit of anti-Semitism in Haman's mind, all the Jews of ancient Persia had to die. He was so sure of revenge against Mordechai, a righteous Jew, 
that he obtained the king's consent to have all the Jews killed. Haman imagined Mordecai swinging from gallows. But there's a God in heaven who says, No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that rises in judgment against you, you shall condemn. For this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness, their vindication is of me. And as it turned out, Haman swung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. Haman never reckoned that there was an Esther in the palace whose fastings, prayers, and intercession with the king brought about his downfall. And did you know that Satan also miscalculated and overstepped at Calvary? For as 1 Corinthians 2.8 declares, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. At the cross, Satan struck the heel of Jesus, according to the prophecy of Genesis 3.15. But in the battle, Satan's head was crushed. Hallelujah. And now he goes about with insane brain damage, knowing his time is very short. When Jesus returns, Satan will be chained for a thousand years. Now also, Revelation 12.11 is a powerful verse to use as the sword of the Spirit. This verse says that the saints, the servants of God, overcame Satan, the accuser of the brethren. How? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Yes, we have to learn a simple reliance upon the power of the blood of the Lamb. It never fails. As the only ground of our hopes and eternal safety. If the blood of the Lamb is how the saints have overcome Satan in the past, then we must also learn to overcome him by the blood of Jesus and by the word of our testimony. We have to use the same pattern and the same promise. One commentary says, Revelation 12, 11 should read, And they conquered him, Satan, on account of the blood of the Lamb and on account of of the word of their testimony. In other words, our victory over Satan is owing to the blood of the Lamb. And when we put our hand to the gospel plow, we must expect to meet resistance from the accuser of the brethren. It's his nature to oppose and to accuse. But when you're serving God and when you're praying fervently for the peace of Jerusalem, the Lord's rebuke will silence the evil one. Those whom the Lord ordains into a royal priesthood are clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness. And we appear before God by faith in clean white linen. In Zechariah 3, we saw the high priest restored to former honors and duties. Even the crown of the priesthood was set upon Joshua's head. And Satan cannot withstand what the Lord himself restores and revives. God is acquitting Jerusalem in our day, not because he doesn't recognize Israel's sins, but the word of God says they have received double for their sins. And on the ground of his election, they are being gloriously restored. And I invite you to rejoice with Jerusalem, all of those of you who love her.
And in the meantime, you can stay in touch through social media and watch all of our other videos at our website, exploits.tv, where you can also click online to receive our newsletter, Exploits. And please download our free app so that you can watch and listen on your mobile phone or tablets. And so until next time, always contending for the faith, watching on the walls, and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg, Maranatha, and Shalom. What an amazing panorama of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. To the east is the Mount of Olives, and beyond that, the Judean wilderness, the Dead Sea, and the nation of Jordan, where presently 600,000 Syrian refugees have escaped. It's hard to imagine that right beyond this horizon, there is a holocaust going on amongst the Christian population of the Middle East. That's why the Jerusalem Channel has been created, to bring you a perspective of biblical events in the Middle East. When you visit our website every day, we have updates on news, prophecy, and what's happening and how it all tells us that Jesus is coming soon to establish His rule in this city. We want to invite you to become a supporter of the Jerusalem Channel. If you give in the United States, please know that your gift is tax deductible. And in the United Kingdom, we can claim gift aid on your donation. And so we invite you to get behind the Jerusalem Channel. There's never been a day like right now. We have so many opportunities to share the gospel in the remaining times of the Gentiles. Israel is rising again and God is visiting this nation. So stay in touch at exploits.tv. I'm Christine Doric. Shalom.